There will be times when embracing the void seems impossible. I know this already, alone, unsure, dwarfed by the scale of the void. Remember this, acceptance is a pure idea. It occurs spontaneously and without instruction. Remember that the frontier of connection is everywhere, and even the smallest act of compassion pushes our lines forward. Remember that the need for control is so desperate because it is so unnatural. Tyranny requires constant effort. Authority is brittle. Oppression is the mask of fear. Remember all that as you try to embrace the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. Life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline? That we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death? No! Don't save Riley! <laughs> Take her to the moon for me. Okay? Welcome, friends, to episode 257 of Embrace the Void, where nothing makes sense, but at least it takes a while. I am your host, Aaron, and my guest this week is Matt Dillahunty, longtime activist for skepticism and atheism and former host of The Atheist Experience. Matt has engaged in public debates on contentious issues like religion and reproductive rights with contentious individuals like Ray Comfort and Jordan Peterson. Matt, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. <laughs> no, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. No, I'm glad to have you on. We had a chat a little while ago on your show about wokeness. You and I have been chatting back and forth since we got to meet at AACon, mm -hmm. um, and I'm excited to have you on. And it's a rather fortuitous time, in a, in a sense, for me at least, to have a conversation with you because you're in an interesting transitional phase to some extent. You just wrapped up 16 years on the atheist experience. And I'm curious, you know, I guess I want to start with a bit of a like retrospective. I don't, you know, folks can look up your bio and things like that, but I'm, I'm curious to hear sort of broadly what your experience has been like over the past 16 years hosting this show. Yeah. I, I don't, did you want me just to, I, it's hard to say what it's been like broadly. So we'll, we'll get to like yeah, more so specific questions, but it's been, it, yeah. it's my favorite thing. Mm -hmm. And I, if, if there hadn't been for some serious failures by the leadership of the organization, I'd still be there. I, I would, I would have done atheist experience, uh, until I died or until they kicked me off or until they, you know, essentially ghosted me and let me go do my own thing. And so the shows that I'm doing now are similar in format or in some cases identical, not because it's, I, I guess it's because maybe it's the only thing I know how to do, but it's the one thing I definitely love to do is to have call-in shows. And it, it doesn't bother me when they get heated and it doesn't bother me when, when people want to, I don't know, make, I, I, I've been the subject of a lot of false claims and attacks over the years. And, uh, it's, it hasn't stopped me because the conversations are important. I was just watching like Jordan Klepper from the daily show talking to uh, kind of the, the most irrational MAGA Trump supporters and they're flat like willingly there I'm getting ready to work to a video about honestly dishonest where, mm -hmm. where they're actively saying, Oh yes. When I got home uh, on January 6th from that peaceful day where we were all standing there uh, and somebody put on the news, I made them turn it off because what they were showing on the news isn't what happened. And I'm like, that's a level of, of honest dishonesty that I find absolutely terrifying. And yet it, it is completely mirrored in what I've seen out of a good chunk of religious people over the years on the show. Talk to me a little bit about that experience, the kind of the takeaways you've had from these arguments over the years. Do you feel like the majority of them have been sort of unreasonable arguments? Do you feel like there's a very small number of arguments or that there's like a kind of wide range of it? What has your been kind of your your summary analysis of like the, the how many arguments for the existence of God experience? Yeah. 
it's so th there's a handful of different argument categories. And so when somebody says, oh, I want to debate the moral argument, well, that's a mm -hmm. category of arguments. There's different moral arguments within it. And it's fine. We, we can discuss any of those. But what I've noticed over 17 and a half years of doing that show is they're cyclical. And so a particular argument will become popular for some period of time and we'll hear it over and over again from callers. And then mm -hmm. after we've countered it a bunch, it'll sort of fade out and a new one will take its place and you'll go through the cycle. And then eventually you'll get back to the same kind of first argument that you were presented in that cycle. Mm. And some of it has to do with which apologists are most popular at the moment. You know, if, mm -hmm. if uh, Craig is on a resurgence, then you're going to hear more the Kalam cosmological argument more often. If there's been a, you know, a discord where some presuppositionalists have come in to start talking about logical absolutes and how you need a, a reliable grounding and how God seems to solve the problem. You'll get that over and over again. It, it's, it's like the apologists are out there preparing people who do not understand, people who haven't spent any serious time studying this, and in many cases are just parroting something that they heard. And so they get them all confident that now I can take on the atheists and they'll call into the show and just absolutely get steamrolled. And then they go back to the drawing board. And mm -hmm. the people who are following those apologists, you know, obviously they've been done a great disservice, but all they're doing is going to look for the next argument that proves the thing they think that they already believe. And the apologists who do understand these arguments, who are presenting them, are doing exactly the same thing, only at a slightly more profound or, or significant level, I would say, in that when their argument gets rebutted, they go build a new argument to get to the same point. In every single circumstance, they're trying to lead the evidence where they want it to go instead of following the evidence where it actually leads. Mm. Do you, is that your experience of like 100% of callers? Do you feel like everyone who's calling into your show is calling in because they think they have the winning ticket and they're going to play that card and they're going to convert you there on the show? Or do you feel like you experience some people who call in who are more curious, more like open-minded about like, what do you think about this particular idea? Aren't kind of trying to gotcha with their arguments. Now there's, there's a good mix, a good, uh, a, a significant junk, not a hundred percent, but probably over half the callers think that they, I mean, they're, they're completely cocksure and confident and they think they've got the thing and the atheists are just mindless and deceived and broken and so they're going to call in and it's because they've never actually engaged with somebody who understands these things before. But there's also a number of people who call in who are genuinely curious, genuinely would describe themselves as being on the fence or I don't understand this or my preacher told me this and it seems to make sense to me, but how can you guys not accept this? And so there are people who are far more interested in having the conversation and those calls tend to go much better. The ones I, I, mm -hmm. I have for better or worse, over the years that I've done this, developed the ability to spot exactly where the caller is going, usually within 30 seconds and sometimes a shorter period of time. And because mm -hmm. of that, I can tailor questions that are designed in a somewhat Socratic method to lead them to recognize where they've made a mistake. And if I'm not going to reach the person on the phone, it will at least make that clear to, to viewers who agreed with like, I'm not necessarily trying to convince the person I'm talking to, although I will always present, prevent, present what I think should convince them. I'm mm -hmm. doing it for the people who are listening, who share those views, but who aren't on the spot. Because we already know that even in the face of strong evidence to the contrary, once you've made a public profession of what it is that you believe, you're more likely to double down even in opposition to strong evidence. And for something like the God issues, where... I can't present strong evidence that a God doesn't exist. That's a shifting of the bird of proof. And so because it is in this fuzzy thing where it's like, well, you know, I just look at the world and I can't imagine that all of this happened by accident. It just doesn't mm -hmm. make sense to me. And I genuinely understand people who are in that mindset. Uh, the, the thing that I think that is holding them back is recognizing that when I look around the world, I have difficulty grasping how it could have all happened as well. But the answer for me is to say, I don't know how this happened, 
let's go and explore and learn and see if we can figure it out. And let's, let's do it the right way. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and with, you know, evidence-based investigation. And if it turns out that the answer remains, I don't know for the rest of my life, as, as disconcerting as that may be, it's still the right answer. Whereas some people are so uh, uncomfortable with acknowledging that they don't know that they're happy to take whatever answer seems to make it feel to them and perhaps to other people that they do know, or that they know the person who knows, which is the bigger thing that quite often happens is, I don't know why there's something rather than nothing, but God knows, and I know God, and maybe God will tell me someday. Right. Yeah, I think this is an interesting point, because I was curious where you feel like your target demographic is for content like this, and how you are trying to impact them, because I think you know, a surface level reading of it would be that you, you know, this is a kind of information deficit approach that might be, you know, I think some people now think that like disagreeing with people, having public debate is kind of um, not actually a great way to persuade or change minds. Um, But it seems like you're sort of saying that um, it isn't even necessarily a goal of changing minds so much as um, modeling a behavior of being comfortable with uncertainty, um, where, you know, like it is the demand for comfort and certainty that is driving the behavior more than any specific argument. Yeah. I'm, well, it's, it's a multifaceted goal, I guess, for me. Um, mm-hmm. when I say I'm not trying to convince a person on the phone, I would be happy if it happened. I just know that it's incredibly unlikely. Uh, and so my target audience is probably first and predominantly atheists who hopefully want to learn the arguments, the responses, and how to think critically about this so that when they're engaged in a conversation, you know, when they're home for Christmas and Aunt Sue is going off about how uh, Jesus has just done a wonderful work in their life and this illness that somebody else in the family is having is, a, is, a, is Satan coming after them because they're not living right, um, that they're better equipped for that. That's one facet of it. It's undeniable that one big facet of it is is entertainment because there is a portion of the atheist community that wants nothing better than to have the cathartic release of watching theists look stupid uh, because mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're up on this high horse. They're making proclamations about how they have the moral high ground, they have the intellectual high ground. And when they just get steamrolled on this, it is cathartic, and I understand that. But the, the third facet is that people, anyone who's genuinely curious, whether they're a believer or not, who wants to have the conversations, I want to have those conversations. Because if I'm wrong, I'd love to know it. If, if in fact, there's a really good reason to believe that there is a God, do you, I, I definitely want to know that. Do you really think, though, that there's an any percent chance that someone would call into your show with an argument that you haven't heard that's actually going to give you serious pause about this issue at this point? I, I or do you don't feel like you've mapped the theoretical space enough that, like, there's not a new argument that's going to randomly show up, right? It's going to fall into one. Of, it's going to be a variation on one of these basic lines of arguments. Yeah, I don't think we're likely to see... And it's not really an argument, a new argument, because they're all going to come back to some sort of argument for. And there are arguments that are um, valid in structure, but not necessarily sound. And mm-hmm. so it's not so much a, a new argument I'm looking for. It is the evidence that supports the argument. So you take a look at something like the Kalam, which is everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause to its existence. That's the mm-hmm. whole argument. That argument doesn't mention God at all, anywhere, at any time. It's it's an add-on. So even if that argument were valid and sound, all it would mean is that the universe has a cause. It wouldn't tell us anything at all about what the nature of that cause is, which is why when you hear like William Lane Craig and others present that, they present right. that as a formal structure. That's why I can rattle it off. Everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause for its existence. But then everything that they do after that to get to why they are uh, Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that's not structured the same way. It's not talked about the same way. It's not even presented as, as a, you know, premises and a conclusion. It is, and we know the cause must be, you know, immaterial, timeless, powerful, all powerful, you know, and and so that 
mm-hmm. the specifics are on much weaker footing, which is why by and large, when I uh, get invited to do debates, it's very rare that any of my debate opponents want to debate a specific point of doctrine or a specific fact that they accept. Instead, it is, does God exist? And they go for this generic deistic notion of God, or let me argue because we need a moral foundation. So I don't think we're going to see anything new, but in argument form, but I can't rule out that there might be new evidence that we might discover something or that a, a God might show up and actually present itself. I don't think that's likely based on mm-hmm. the history. And it would make me start questioning what kind of God is it that for 13.7 billion years um, plays the, uh, this amazing game of hide and go seek and then shows up after there's fighting and conflict over who he is, what he is, what he wants and everything else. And then just decides to show himself. So mm-hmm. even if there was a God, it, it's either grossly immoral um immensely disinterested in us or um there's something else going on that is far more important than having it demonstrate this because if i were if i were god i could prove it to everybody instantly and if it were important to me as a god that people knew i existed and believed in me or agreed with me i would interact with them in detectable ways in measurable ways it's funny right. that the people who come up with these arguments say, it, it reminds me of the Douglas Adams thing where uh, the Babel fish winds up uh, proving that God must exist and then convincing God that he, he doesn't exist because the Babel fish is too good of a proof. So mm. it's like people are like, oh, I know God exists because he did this miracle for me. We had this person call into the show yesterday who uh, had talked about their, their difficulties with um, suicidal ideations how they went to a church where they do not believe that the pastor was truly a man of God or anything else. And while they were there at the church, they were not going there to learn anything or to try to touch God. But as they were leaving, a four-year-old kid came up to them and said, please don't kill yourself. And they thought that this had to be a message from God, because how would this kid know that they had been dealing with this? Right. And that discussion was, I mean, in many ways, heartbreaking and in many ways one of the most frustrating ones I think I've ever had because what she was trying to say is she's convinced that there is a God but not the one that the preacher is preaching on behalf of and so the all-powerful all-knowing God of the universe cared so much about her that even though she was in a church that he didn't really want anything to do with he told a four-year-old to deliver a message but he didn't love her enough to deliver that message himself. How is it that there can be something that is so, oh, this this has to be God. It couldn't have been anything other than God. If it absolutely had to be God, why wouldn't God just tell you himself? If he's going I mean, to provide the joke, the joke always goes, I, I sent the boat and the helicopter and stuff, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Stuff. Well, it, so, you know, I guess my feeling is, you know, a lot of these arguments do have the same kind of argument form of here's a deep philosophical or scientific problem um, for which we do not have a currently, you know, like sufficient consensus answer or something like that. And then like, therefore, God is is tacked on to the end of them, um, which makes it sort of, I don't think, hugely valuable for us to like go through all of those different kinds of arguments. I do think some of them are more worth tackling than others like the moral arguments because a lot of people i think psychologically do get really worried that they can't be moral if they abandon their religion or you know they internalize the kind of immoral non-believer stereotype or something like that so i think it's valuable to give them sort of space to address uh those issues but i also wanted to go back to something you were saying there about the kind of catharsis porn that like this kind of um asymmetrical combat, let's say, can can provide for uh, members of the community, um, which is something that I do think can be valuable for individuals who come especially from abusive religious backgrounds and for whom that can be sort of a healthy part of their healing process to hear the people that like they've been abused by sort of get dunked on in this in this safe kind of way. Um, but I also think there's a reasonable concern that the kind of rise of new atheism in uh, you know, the 2000s and whatnot um, was driven by a lot of that kind of 
content and may have brought a lot of, you know, a fair number of people to the movement who were more primarily interested in feeling intellectually superior than, you know, the important um, projects, moral projects that might go along with being an atheist or something like that. Um, how do you feel about sort of the the dynamics of of dunking and like um, how how we should treat non-believers in terms of compassion versus derision and um, you know how your projects fit into that whole debate? Yeah, all I can really do is is talk about what goes through my head and believe it or not, despite the fact that a considerable amount of dunking happens when I'm on a show, um, it's not a goal. And what I try to do is make sure that I don't give up the high ground first, uh, but that I don't sit around so overwhelmingly um, peaceful that I just get walked all over. Um, the people who, yes, there were a good chunk of people who wanted to feel intellectually superior, but I don't think it's because they were sitting around going, I'm way smarter than all these people. It's time for us to show it. I think it's the, a reaction to them being implicitly stupid. By the, the, the theists are looking around at the, the non-believers um, and acting as if they are morally inferior, acting as if they are intellectually inferior acting as if um, they don't have a leg to stand on, that they're just deceived, that God's given them over to reprobate mind. It can be exhausting to, especially if you're like the only atheist in your family, the only secularist in your family, uh, even mm -hmm. the only skeptic, free thinker, whatever in your family, whatever label it is. And so I can understand why some people can appreciate, um, you know, it's like, I, I, I know more about this stuff than you do. It's like the studies that show that atheists by and large know the Bible better than Christians, um, that um, the, the broader secular community probably knows more about religious history and tradition uh, with the exception of some, there, there are some like, you know, ultra Orthodox Jews and others where your whole life is surrounded in knowing that stuff. And they're always going to know more about their religion um, than I will this notion that, oh, I need to show people I'm intellectually superior. I think it reminds me a little bit of, of, I shouldn't do this, but I will pride. And, and I say that because I had a former friend who, despite being largely left-leaning every year when pride festival would roll around, he would be like, I don't understand. What, what, what are they proud about? You don't have to be proud. I'm not proud that I'm a heterosexual. I'm not, why would you have to be proud about all this? And we had to you know, point out to them that when we talk about something like pride festivals and stuff, it's because they live in a world where people are suggesting that they should be ashamed for who they are and what they are. And that the, the, re, the response to that declaration that you should be ashamed is to say, no, I'm not shamed. I'm proud of this. Not proud in the sense of I accomplished something. I didn't accomplish being queer. I, I am proud in the sense that I am not going to be ashamed by this and, mm -hmm. you know, screw you for suggesting I should be. I think mm -hmm. they're, while they're not identical in, in the, uh, the impact, I don't want to put everybody um, in the same boat that way. I think it's very similar in that when you have been constantly the minority, the squashed minority, the ones that where people are suggesting there's something wrong with you, Genuinely, when when my mom found out I was an atheist, um, her reaction, which, which was just about as delusional as I could have imagined, was to say, thank you, God. I've been praying for years to ask you what was wrong with my son, and today you answered my prayers and told me what mm. was wrong with my son. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah. Like, yeah. No, I gave, I gave my talk at AACON about this and the immoral stereotype and the way that... So, I mean, this to me is is important because I think atheist non-believers are a marginalized community in a nominally secular but largely christian dominated america at least let's let's focus in on america here um and we and you know i like that you compare it to things like um gay rights because there certainly was an immoral stereotype about gay people and continues to be one in, in many communities about gay people as well and that continues to harm them in terms of their outcomes even as that sort of you know um way of being becomes more normalized that sexuality becomes more commonplace um 
and this to me is like an important premise in what I think is a larger argument in a larger debate within our communities about like, what is the goal of movement atheism? Is it just to make more atheists? Is it just to make the current atheists happier? Is it to make them better atheists or better people or something like that? And for me personally, I think, uh, I don't see how movement atheism in America, it could be separable from the other social justice movements that are currently kind of fighting for their life within our society, partly because they're all up against the same enemy, which is white Christian nationalism. Um, So I'm curious what you think about that idea that like, there's been this debate, is atheism just about disbelief in God? Or is it about disbelief in God, plus all of the like social obligations that come along with that? Well, atheism is nothing more than a disbelief in God, but movement atheism, uh, in my view, can and should be more. Now, we, there was this whole atheism plus thing and a backlash to that, where, um, which I think was just a lot of really talking past each other, um, mm-hmm. because what we were really saying is, hey, we're atheists. We're also going to be advocating for humanist positions as well. And that sets some people off because, you know, not every atheist is a liberal progressive. I've got, well, I was going to say I got, I've got conservative atheist friends, but I can't really consider them friends anymore. Um, But I at least know that they exist. And when it's like, when you're talking about what the goal is, I mean, this gets back to the question I didn't completely answer, uh, which is Mm -hmm. how I think about this. Because when I'm on the show, I try to make sure people get as good as they give. Um, If you're if you're having an honest conversation, if if I ask a question and you're actually answering that question and not going on to some other question, I'm never even going to get excited or animated, probably. It's when I'm dealing with someone who, you know, in response to a, a question about, tell me what you believe, goes on a diatribe about what it says in Romans 3. Um, and I'm like, you know, no, I need to know what you believe and why, not this peripheral thing. And I try to remember that it's somebody's first time seeing the show. Uh, that I'm mm-hmm. not going to make everybody happy. I mean, I've been under attack for for 17 years from anybody and everybody, atheists and theists alike, from uh, vegans and whatever. It doesn't matter. Anything you say, you're going to. There's going to be people lobbing volleys at you on the internet. And so when I look at what the the goal of movement atheism is, it's not so much about creating more atheists. Uh, although I'm happy when people give up their religious views. Um, For me, my skepticism and my humanism are far more important to me than my atheism. And so what I'm mainly teaching, I could roll up as skepticism and humanism. And if it turns out there is a God, I don't have to change very much other than I'm not going to identify myself as an atheist, but I'm still a skeptic and I'm still a humanist. And if that God's not a humanist, fuck him. I don't need him. It's Mm -hmm. And so the goal for me... I want to know, I want to understand it better. I want to get better at having the conversations. But if I run across people, I don't ever want to not be equipped to ask the right questions that at least make them think. And if that doesn't result in new atheists, I'm okay with that. Because as much as I hate to use this particular phrase, um, well, I'll change it. I was going to use atheist normalcy, but I don't like that one. I'd say destigmatizing sure. atheism, destigmatizing stereo, uh, uh, secularism mm-hmm. is the bigger goal because we may never agree. Like my parents are never going to stop believing. And there's a number of people who are not going to change their mind no matter how much you talk to them. But mm-hmm. my, my bigger point is that I don't know how to tell who those people are without talking to them. And maybe not even then. Maybe mm-hmm. even after talking to him, I can't tell you whether they're ever going to change their mind. Maybe I'm not the one to change it. Maybe I'm just planting a seed to to dip back into my Christian upbringing. Mm. Yeah, and I I'm for this destigmatizing of atheism, and I think my my feeling on the best way we can try to do it based on some of the stuff that I've looked at, studies and things suggests that like just by more openly espousing not just our atheism, but our moral principles, our principles about compassion and fairness and justice and, uh, you know, those sorts of things can reinforce, you know, or, or push back on this idea that like those who abandon God also abandon, you know, any principles, but self-interest or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think, you know, that becomes part of another reason why it's valuable for us as, as a kind of movement to sort of be explicitly oriented towards various social justice issues, though that might mean that we see like we have some amount of schisming within the movement and some people who were, I mean, you said you, you had uh, conservative atheist friends who are not conservative atheist friends anymore. Um, do you feel like it's it's overall better that those people are no longer welcome in at least the parts of the movement that we're working in? I don't know whether, whether it's an issue of being welcome, but I mean, just being charitable with what you said. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, I hear a lot about cancel culture, but I just view it as accountability culture um, where, you know, you're actually, if you're going to be terrible to the people I care about, you're not welcome in my house. And if we're going to have a convention and you're, you're showing up hoping that the convention espouses your bigoted views, um, it doesn't matter to me whether or not you're an atheist. I'd rather hang out. I just had a great discussion um, with um, Yogeshwara or Joshua Green, who's, um, a Hare Krishna, although he no longer uses that title explicitly, but he wrote the Code of Ethics for um, ISKCON, which is the international. Oh, I'm going to get the I'm going to get the title wrong, but it's basically um, Krishna consciousness um, movement, and he's he's an incredibly progressive um, liberal. I mean, he, he was pissing off Hare Krishnas in chat with his take on some things. Uh, mm -hmm. more than I was. So it was a really easy discussion, but I'd rather hang out with him any day and work side by side with him than a number of atheist people who, who some of whom were my friends who have completely gone off the deep end with, uh, Oh, I'm anti-woke and we, we, you know, we can't have, why should we be talking about LGBTQ issues? And, and why does this have to be this way? And, and it's, it's like an extreme hardcore libertarianism, which is, I got mine, fuck you if you can't get yours, but this is the way I want things, while ignoring the practical realities of cooperation. I don't mm -hmm. need to have, you know, you mentioned this, this stereotype that once you give up a god, you're basically in it for yourself. I've made the case, and I think pretty strongly, that you can begin with, from a purely selfish position of I want nothing, I care about nothing to begin with other than my own well-being, and you still get to what we identify as altruism. You still get to what we identify as cooperation because you are stuck sharing space. It's in my best interest to make sure there are doctors to take care of me, and that involves an incredible system of education and cooperation and everything else, and it means that you're going to have to be cooperative and tolerant of people who disagree even strongly on some things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think we all have to try to balance when we're making community what things we're gonna what things are gonna be red lines in terms of you know you can have this belief and still be part of the community versus potentially not, um, and there will always be accusations of purity politics on one side and um, you know working with the wrong people on the other side, um, but it does seem like there has been sort of various shifts over the course of this conflict. I'm curious if you feel like your approach or perspective um, has evolved at all on this. I, I mention it because um, when I talk about um, chatting with you, I, as often is the case with some people who I talk to, I get messages about how you're um, not indicative of the kind of things that you, I think you're describing that you are in favor of here. Um, and usually the, when asked why that is the, the perspective, the citations will be things like you hanging out with Sargon of Akkad and being defensive of doing, <laughs> you know, socially interacting of including people like him in our community. Um, and so I'm curious if you feel like you have changed your perspective on that, or if you've been, you've had the same perspective on who should be part of the movement over the course of this kind of weird schisming process. It's in incredibly interesting to me that that is the example that you got. Um, mm -hmm. Now, y yes, my perspectives have changed and the way I do things, I think have changed. And quite frankly, I, I think I've, um, I've mellowed. And despite the fact that I will always um, defend my righteous indignation and my, um, frustration and harshness with people who aren't arguing honestly 
what frustrates me most, I think, is this rumor mill that runs around where somebody heard something or thought they saw something or they got they got something and they run with it and it becomes a, a way to tarnish. Um, let me tell mm-hmm. you my entire history with Sargon of Akkad. Oh, as long as it's short, I, which I assume it is from that setup. But, yeah, I went yeah. to the Mythicist Milwaukee convention, not wanting to have anything to do with him at all. The night before the convention, we were at the host's VIP party. We sat down um, because he wanted to talk to me. And I was like, okay, let's talk. And he started off by saying, now, it doesn't matter which of us has more followers on the internet. That has nothing to do with, you know, veracity. And I'm like, yes, I'm aware of that. And then we had this back and forth conversation with three or four people standing there watching. Um, When it was about the basics of philosophy, there were points where we agreed. There were points where we a little bit disagreed. And then when we got outside of philosophy to the actual social issues where he and I vehemently disagree. He is an absolutely vile person that I've despised the entire time. In the Mm -hmm. middle of that conversation, he literally said, well, I have more followers than you. So clearly I'm doing a better job of conveying a message than you went directly to the thing they said he wouldn't do. I, I stood up, walked away from him, never spoke to him again and denounced the conference the next day or the next Mm -hmm. week when I got back. And yet somehow somebody's, mindset of me is that I wanted to work with Sargon of Akkad. I, I not only didn't want to work with him, I only went to a convention where he was so that I could report on it and did like an hour long deconstruction of the convention. People g- are getting their information and this is why you can't get anything specific. So yeah, well, like, yeah. So uh, no, I, I mean, that's good to know in terms of the clarification there, though. It sounded like you were also saying you do feel like your perspective and approach has changed and perhaps mellowed in terms of the way you push back on perhaps criticisms of, you know, being in community with certain people or engaging with certain people. Um, The other example that comes up is the fact that you were giving, doing speaking tours with Dawkins and Krauss and Harris as recently as like 2017. you know, I, I don't think that you are disingenuous about the things that you were saying you find valuable, but I'm I'm curious to hear sort of an earnest discussion about, you know, did you think that these people were better then? Do you think that they are not as good now? Like, do you have, have you come to a different perspective on how we should, you know, who we should be inviting to our conferences, you know, come what may in terms of attendance, things like that? I'm like, yeah, it's not so, a sort of I mean, gotcha sort of thing. I'm actually genuinely curious about no, your approach no, th- to these there's things. No ga- there's no gotcha here because there's, there's right. nothing remotely hidden. Sam Harris and I were on tour with Lawrence Krauss right up into the point where it became clear that Lawrence Krauss was lying to us and was mm-hmm. about to be exposed for doing things, um, in, in, behaving inappropriately. And I got direct information from someone I knew who had also been the victim of one of his inappropriate things. And Sam and I, on the very night that we were in Arizona at, at Krauss's university, Sam mm-hmm. came and said, hey, we're not putting Lawrence on stage. And I was like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in favor with that. And let's just go out and address it. Uh, Dawkins, when I did events with him and everything up to then, um, there wasn't anything particularly problematic. But at the second that he started repeating transphobic stuff over and over again, I've called him out repeatedly on multiple shows. It's, it's one of these things where the, you're going to hear. Was an Elevator saying, Gate 2011, though? Oh, no, no. I called him out on Elevator Gate Gate way back then as well. But So you do think that that was like specifically problematic, though? Oh, it was awful. Mm -hmm. A bunch of us called him out for it. But he apologized, albeit a weak apology, I I would say. And so, you know, hey, I'm happy to try to – we're a struggling movement. And if somebody's not, you know, like if if somebody screws up, I'm fine with moving forward if there's actually some kind of apology. So I was, mm-hmm. I was friends. I think, I think I'm still friends with Rebecca Watson. I mean, we haven't spoken in a few years, but we still, you know, follow each other or I followed her stuff. And, um, I don't even think I, well, I, I can't speak for her, but the elevator gate thing was, was an awful, uh, just absolutely tone deaf thing. But myself and several other people, not only after denouncing it, had several conversations with Richard, uh, Richard and I had stronger disagreements on abortion than we did on those other things. He was just like, yes, I shouldn't have said that and blah, blah, blah. And so we would move on. But now he's doing all this transphobic stuff, which is weird because one of the things you're going to hear when you start asking about me is not just, oh, he he had a conversation with Sargon of Akkad, but you're going to hear Matt's a transphobe. 
And I'm like, mm. okay, cool. What have I ever said or done that was transphobic? I've consistently stood up for trans rights. I've called out Dawkins and other people um, who I would probably benefit to keep working with. Um, and I won't. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know what else to do. Yeah, I, I assume like that would be an association with the Austin atheists experience situation with the... Uh, um, uh, the individual who was on the show, who was, um, yeah, Stephen Woodford, you know, right. Who was taking the more scientific, kind of just asking questions approach and yes. got pushback. And, uh, it sounds, it seemed like that was not necessarily dealt with ideally. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think these questions are complicated. Like I don't, I don't present these as a like disproof of anything. I think, I mean, you um, gotta you gotta figure out where you're gonna draw your lines. And for me, right, mm-hmm. um, the fact that Richard's, you know, the, the elevator gate, what he got so much backlash for that he actually uh, posted an apology. And there, I don't think it's that good, but it, it's it, it's enough where it's like, okay, we'll try. Mm-hmm. And um, I got I got booked and paid to do some events. Um, Richard and I were not we're not friends. We're, we're not particularly close. We had, we did those events and did some discussions and I would have been happy to keep doing events with him because um, it's as long as he was working positively towards the move for, for what the movement's goals were and wasn't doing something that was incredibly problematic. There's no reason for me to not, but as soon mm-hmm. as he wasn't, then it, I felt it a, a responsibility to, to call him out. Um, Do you have any, do you have any hypotheses or theories about why it seems like not necessarily new atheist individuals rank and file, but a significant number of like the new atheist uh, people associated with um, our movement during that period kind of spiraled into these IDW heterodox, you know, anti-woke spaces? I don't. And it's, it's troubling because it's one of those things where one day you can be working alongside someone and think that you're exactly on the same page. And this may be our, our greatest failing, not just atheists, human beings as well, to assume that you're just like me for all the things that we haven't actually talked about to confirm yet. Mm-hmm. And even where we've had some conversations, like I, I have, I've had atheist friends who, uh, it was harder for some of them coming out of more fundamentalist Christian backgrounds and so they're like, oh, well, I'm not a Christian anymore, but I'm really not sure what I think about abortion or I'm really not sure what I think about gay rights or I'm really not sure what I think about this. And, you know, one of my favorite things in Austin is this, this show called Estrus Follies, which is a musical comedy variety magic show. Uh, mm-hmm. I go all the time and I take anybody who comes to town. And I had friends who went there and just couldn't laugh because the, the humor, they were still so mired in a religious mindset that the humor... I just felt wrong to them. You know, let's poke fun at Republicans or let's poke fun at Democrats or let's poke fun at anybody. It, it was, it was a little too crude. Like there are people who are like, Matt, you say fuck too much. Um, you should, you should change your language. And I'm like, I completely disagree, but I understand how you got that puritanical idea in your head. And I hope to remove the poison by using the word fuck even more um, to desensitize you to it. But when we assume that everybody around us, because we agree on this big issue, agrees with us on all these other issues and we're all working together on the big issue. That's how you build the community. And then once the community is big enough, this is why I tell people don't panic when you see splits and divisions within the broader atheist community, that is growing pains. And what it shows is that we are now big enough to, to tolerate and allow those splits when, when there was only, you know, 200 old bearded white guys working to promote atheism, there wasn't any room or split or division on that. Now that we've actually grown more and we've become more inclusive, we're saying, oh, I'm, I'm with a group of secularists that are advocating for liberal progressive values, or maybe even that's not specific enough. So it doesn't, it doesn't panic me, but I think this assumption that because you and I agree on God, we're going to agree on everything else. It's handy early in a movement and it is, weirdly useful, but probably some, a little counterproductive later in a movement. Mm. What do you think about the folks who will push back and say, look right now, 
you know, we actually have seen losses. There's been this conflict over social justice and people have sort of walked away on on both sides of that argument. And that what we really need now is a kind of big tent civility where, you know, unless somebody is an out and proud Nazi, you know, just because they have gender critical views or something like that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be welcome at our conferences. Like, do you feel like, uh, you know, if somebody's arguing that they think that that people are drawing the drawing the lines too narrowly in terms of what, you know, disagreements on on various cultural, social, moral issues are we going to allow within the movement? Yeah, I think a lot of that is is language that I find, and I know it's not coming from you, um, just amusing. Just trying to make all the arguments I can. Yeah, yeah. It, it's stuff I find kind of amusing because um, what do you mean allow? Not you, but whoever's saying this is, what, what do you mean allow? First of all, everybody gets to draw their lines wherever you want. And if you think that there's a case to be made for the for the organization that you're participating with to draw the lines differently, you make the case for it. And you either convince the the group that you're with to change, or you go off and you make another group. And um, the, the most successful groups that are um, best at both giving people what they want for that community and in achieving the goals, if that's what they want. There are, there are skeptic and atheist groups like, oh, we're just skeptics in the pub. We get together on Thursdays, we have a beer, we laugh about the pseudoscience and read the horoscopes in the paper so that we can amuse ourselves. And then we go home. And if Except that's for all of course, you, had a schism over the same issues as well. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. If that's all you want your group to be, cool. I'm sure you can find some people to participate with that. And I'm not going to show up at your skeptics in the pub thing and go, I think that we should be, that this particular group that I've never been a part of should start focusing on my issues. I would say that if I found a group of people that I was having fun with on Thursdays, I would raise those issues saying, hey, I'm working on these other things too. Those of you who'd like to participate in, in those things, please, we need more help. You know, it's not everything. I, I remember Greta Christina gave a talk probably a decade ago about the myth of mission creep. That mm -hmm. when you start saying, this is the atheist community. It's only about atheism. We shouldn't be talking about queer issues. We shouldn't be talking about social justice issues at all. Um, it's mission creep. You're going you're gonna to lose the battle over religion if you start adding all this other stuff into it. There are some good strategic points to be made on that. Like I, Hillary Clinton said something similar recently, and she, was, she, she got kind of raked over the coals for it by some on the left. Um, but she was just making a statement about strategy mm -hmm. that maybe if we don't spend all of our time, those on the left, talking about specifically trans rights, but instead talk about what the left is outside of there so that you get those people elected, you get the trans rights stuff along with it. You get that still social change. And it, 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 the confusion was, is she arguing that we should be dishonest and like saying, oh, I'm for all these things and then just not talk about the things we wanted to smuggle in. But I think she's saying you could actually get more leftists and more progressive leftists elected by tailoring your message not in a dishonest way, but tailing your message with regard to what you're focused on. But if we spend all our time, look, I'm the biggest pronoun corrector you're probably going to come across. It, it, if I know it and I'm in favor of it, you know, if I, well, not if I'm in favor of it, if I know what the pronouns are, if I know what the issue is, I'll, I'll correct stuff. But that doesn't mean that it needs to be the first thing people mention. I think there's value in that. I think it, there's value in saying, hey, we do care about this and we're going to show that we care about this. We're going to show that we are not just paying lip service to it. But when Hillary was talking from a strategic point of view, I don't think she was wrong. Um, and I don't think, I think that if she'd got elected, we'd have been better off whether she ever talked about trans rights or not, because we would just get that. And we would, we would not have lost the Supreme court and Roe and countless other things. Not that it's the people on the left's fault. Uh, because in many cases, as we talked about earlier, kind of dealing uh -huh. with people who are just willingly divorcing themselves from reality. People were at the January 6th thing and then went home. And when they saw on the news what happened, they turned the news off because in their head, that's not what happened. Anyway, I, I got sidetracked there, but. No, it's okay. I mean, I think there are deep, deep disagreements in politics about 
you know, hiding your power level on social justice issues so that you can evolve on them later? You know, is it valuable to get a neoliberal shill into office on the hopes that they will do something social justice oriented while also continuing to deregulate? You know, I like I was very pro voting for Hillary, but I'm also um not going to say that there's anything, you know, like, I think there's a, a reasonable objection to push back on, which is, you know, if the person isn't being held to say the things when they are running for the office, there's no real reason to believe that they will actually push for those things when they are in office. Um, I don't think there are correct, you know, like, like a solved, you know, solution to these kinds of problems, um, just to kind of provide the, I think, alternative perspective to, to what you're saying there while still saying, I think, vote Hillary. Um, yeah. Let me let me ask you, though, well, you me, know. Let me, let me mm-hmm. jump in with one quick thing, because my one of my all-time favorite shows is The West Wing. I've watched every episode. I've watched it start to finish uh, 10 times because I was introducing different people to it and everything else. But there's a moment where, where they're in California, and President Bartlett is sitting down with a incredibly rich movie producer, gay rights activist, and he, mm-hmm. he's not willing to throw any support unless Bartlett comes out and says he will veto any bill um, that uh, ha- has any opposition to gay marriage. And Bartlett just lays into him in the most passionate way. And he's like, don't you understand? I'm a human starting pistol. You don't want to make the election about this because the second you do, the second I talk about it, I give it air. But if I don't talk, yes, I'll veto it when it comes up. But if I say I'm going to veto it, that changes the nature of the politics such that now they have to push it just to make me veto it. it the, the machinations of politics are, are disgusting um, and dishonest across the board. Right. I'm just, you I'm, have to I understand think- how to play the game or you're screwed. And I don't think Democrats. Yeah, so I think I think how you play the game is more complex. Yeah, I think Democrats are terrible at this, but I also think that it's not as simple as you know. I think Bill Maher also often makes arguments along the lines of let's just not talk about the cutting edge of social justice issues, and then we will get more white moderates who are fleeing the Trumpists or something like that. And you know, there might be something to that in some places, um, but I also think there's an argument that like part of how you get your your actual constituents to turn out to vote is to say, no, I'm genuinely going to stand up for this issue, you know, be, even if it is politically unpopular. Um, and I think, you know, there's no perfect balance to those things. Um, but I don't think we should say that either one of them has a kind of uh, easy answer there. But the other quick thing I wanted to ask you about, because I'm trying to sort of hit all of the different, uh, you know, argumentative perspectives that I think are, are sort of floating around the atheist world these days is given that it seems like you are sort of coming out in a strongly pro-woke perspective, generally speaking, right? You're checking people's pronouns all the time and whatnot. Um, What do you say to the objections, right? If somebody called into your show and said that you're religious because you're woke, I don't know if that's actually happened. Maybe it has already happened to you at this point, but like there's a common argument that like wokeism is a kind of religious um, and it's a kind of religion that has taken over parts of movement atheism and that, you know, you see pushback on things like um, Mandisa talking about um, white supremacy in atheist in movement atheism. Um, how would you sort of address the concern of religiosity there? Well, I make it a point to never agree with Mandisa if I can help it. Well, that's um, a good plan. But, <laughs> but no, no, I've been accused of this. The most common case is when they say that I've bought into the religion of um, gendered souls, mm-hmm. because that's their dishonest take on just pointing out that trans women are women, trans men are men. As soon as you do that, they, they say, oh, you, you bought it. You've sacrificed science and you bought into a woke religion of gendered souls. And I'm like, no, not for one second. Do I believe there's a soul, nor do I believe that it's gendered. I just have an understanding of gender identity and uh, that that's you don't seem to grasp, and I'm happy to have that conversation. But if the worst that somebody can do, what what when people say I've bought into a religion, if they're the atheist anti woke people who want to say I'm religious, I genuinely don't care that much. Um, it, it, they can't actually make the argument because the science is on my side and humanism and empathy are on my side and the experts on gender are on my side on this. And it's like, okay, cool. I'm, I'm sorry that this is so such a big deal for you. When religious people suggest that I'm also religious, 
I just say, so what you're saying is religion's a bad thing and you're okay with, with it. That, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm part mm-hmm. of religion. You're part of a religion. Uh, and my religion is just as valid or invalid as yours. Thanks. Um, thanks for admitting that your religion has no validity. Thanks for using, you know, your own label as a pejorative. Uh, if you're going to attack me with it, I'm just going to turn it right back around. Have you ever had the, I mean, I get the move a lot of times from religious individuals where they'll say, well, I'm not using it as a pejorative, but it's important that you acknowledge that your beliefs are religiously based so that they can then be treated, you know, religiously under the law. But so like, like there, there, there are varying degrees of where they want to go with this. Yeah. Some of it will be, you know, you can't assert your religion over my religion in schools. So we can't have gender affirming policies in schools or you know james Lindsay will say that like this means that you should you know it should be illegal to teach critical race theory in schools because it's a religion or something like that so there's varying impacts where i guess i i worry about sort of conceding the point to them or conceding the conclusion to them that this really is a religion because of like what they might then try to propagandize based on that argument well, I think if they went beyond the propaganda to where they were trying to do something legally to say, oh, well, this is your religion, therefore you can't teach it. Um, I think that that would just get demolished in any reasonable you know, court of law or anything else because, mm-hmm. okay, science is my religion. Does that mean we can't teach science? Right. I mean, there, now we're done. Um, well, so, I mean, you do get the creationist arguments, the the intelligent design arguments are essentially you have as much faith in your science as you you know we do in creationism. So it should be teach the controversy. Yeah, and and you know what? I'm happy to teach the controversy in a comparative religions class, um, mm. just not in a science class. And mm. and so you keep you can keep pushing. I I think comparative religions classes shouldn't be electives. I think they should be required. I I, I think they should be uh, compulsory. Because the number of people who have no idea how they think my my cherished religious traditions that my family raised me with and I grew up with, that's just the normal. And everybody else's are weird, but they don't know anything about everybody else's. And mm. I took a comparative religions course when I was a freshman in high school, I think. And while it didn't make me an atheist right away, when I finally found my way out of religion, I remember sitting in that class going, all these other people believe weird stuff. Why can't they just believe in Jesus? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how thoroughly indoctrinated I was. You, you cannot see the the problem with your own beliefs, which is, it, it gets back to what we were talking about with uh, Jordan Klepper and the and the mm-hmm. MAGA folks and January sixth and all these other things. We have a horrible blind side spot to anything that might expose our problem and I th- our our problems. I think most people are never going to take a full inventory of what they believe and why. And while all of us are going to make mistakes and I am wrong about many things and I will continue to find out that I'm wrong about them, I'm comfortable with the fact and perhaps disproportionately so, but I'm comfortable with the fact that I spent years thoroughly evaluating every single position I had and why I had it. Once I found out that I couldn't believe in religion, the, the Christianity or any religion that I was aware of, then it became, mm-hmm. hang on, why is murder wrong then? If I thought murder was wrong because there was a God, is murder wrong? How do, that's that's the the level that I went. I had to go through what what is the foundation of my moral system if I throw out religion? Mm. Am I what do I know about anything? Do I have a solution to the problem of hard solipsism? Is can I just ignore reality? Um, that, there's Some a days. lot of work there that nobody really does. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and I realize we're running short on time, so maybe we can actually... I have some questions for you about teaching comparative religion, because I'm interested sure. in teaching both ethics and comparative religion in schools and why it's never going to happen, um, <laughs> at least here. Uh, but let's save that for, for a little bit of VIP time. And let me ask you the last question I have to ask before I get to torturing you, um, which is, you know, for folks who are curious to understand more about how you know you think about these issues where you're coming from skepticism atheism in general what resources would you recommend uh folks check out oh i you're and this can be separate stuff. from this is separate of course from things that you can you can plug your own content at the end of the show but like things that have been valuable for you in your own journey and stuff like that ah yes so infidels.org was a website that had a wealth of information to help me 
um, when I was kind of deconstructing a little bit. Um, I always mm -hmm. recommend recoveringfromreligion.org for people, whether you're on your way out or just confused or whatever else, they're not going to try to convert you. They're genuinely there to help people who are having difficulties. Um, the Secular Therapy Project is great, um, in particular for people who are suffering from religious trauma syndrome. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a couple of videos up on on books that I tend to recommend. Um, my friend Guy P. Harrison wrote a book, 50 Reasons People Give for Believing in a God, which I have a problem with one of his examples, but he and I talked about it on the podcast. And apart from that, it's a great, it's it's better introduction to let me sit down and think about and talk about religion than anything myself or Dawkins or any other atheist that, that I can think of has put out um, because it's it's done in a layman way from a, a simple perspective. And then uh -huh. my other favorite books, John Allen Paulus's Enumeracy, um, go listen to David McCraney's You Are Not So Smart podcast and his books on how, ch how minds change. Um, and then read through the secular, the, the secular humanist manifestos, all versions, and figure out which version you like better and why, because I prefer <laughs> the second one to the third one. Um, those those things give you a good insight into the beginnings of this, and then go find my stuff on YouTube or Patreon or wherever else. Okay, and I, I, maybe I'll find out why you prefer the second version to the third version for uh, for patrons here. But unfortunately, this means I now am at the point where I have to torture you. Uh, so this is the enlightening round. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. Ugh. And this is Enlightening Round 2, Trolley Boogaloo Edition. So I'm going to give you a series of trolley scenarios. I'm sure as someone who exists in the modern world, you are familiar with the classic trolley scenario. And I'm going to ask you in each of these scenarios whether you should pull the lever or not. So your burden here is should or should not, not what you think you would do psychologically, but what you think you ought to do. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. And we are here assuming innocent strangers, et cetera, until unless I say otherwise. Ready? It, it, do I, and, and if mm -hmm. I, I have no way to assess what the ought is, should I say that? Or do I just, you want me to pick one no matter what? Oh, you got to pick one no matter what. Okay. Right. Like in reality, you got to do something or not do something. Um, so first, of course, the classic trolley problem. Should you pull the lever to save five people by killing one person? Yes. Okay. Should you save five by, instead of switching the trolley on another tracks, causing a person to be shoved onto the tracks? Yes. Okay. Um then would you say you should uh, pull the lever and save yourself by killing one other person? I, this, so if I have to pick one, I'm, I'm going to have to say yes, because it's me, because I don't know any other way to evaluate that one. Great. So there, then let me ask you, uh, would you save yourself by killing a five-year-old? Hell yeah. Okay, <laughs> thereby proving that atheists are in fact deeply immoral. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, would you save yourself by killing five people? Or should you? Excuse me, should no. you? No. Okay. All right, new trolley. Would, should you, excuse me, should you save your favorite body of artistic work by killing the artist? No. Okay. What if the artist is begging you to kill them and save their art? Yes. Okay. Um, should you save the only existing sentient artificial intelligence by killing one human? Yes. Mm. Um, should you save just one of many sentient AIs by killing one human? No. Okay. What about five sentient AIs by killing one human? No. Okay. Um, what if it turned out that you were in fact the sentient AI? Should you save yourself by killing a human? Just one of many AIs. Oh, just one of many? 
Yeah, not a unique. But it's not still a, not me. A unique, it's still me. You. So yes, we we already established that I'm selfish. Okay, great, perfect. Some people, you know, might switch on that one. Um, all right. I mean, for each one of these, I'd have 50 questions about all the other factors and everything. But yep. we're just going with you know innocent how, de facto. How the game works. Giving you yeses. You're doing great. All right. So last round here. Should you save a random non-human animal by killing a human? No. Okay. What about save your favorite non-human animal by killing one human? No. Okay. What about saving an entire ecosystem by killing one human? Yes. Okay. You have survived. How do you feel? I feel pretty good. I mean, these are never fun. For the most part, there's <laughs> not a right answer. And each one of them, I think, is far better when you propose the question and then have two hours of discussion amongst 10 people where sure. somebody gets pissed off and has to go smoke break outside type thing. Uh, mm -hmm. But I like them. There's actually, a, I think Cyanide and Happiness did a, a trolley problem a game, game mm -hmm. that somebody brought over to the house for our game night. And it wasn't very good, but it was still... It didn't look very good. It looked it, like a kind of. It was know, an interesting um, idea that I couldn't wait to play, but the game itself was not was not good. Right. It kind of had a, a feeling. It looked like um. Uh, what is it? Uh, it's a popularity uh, contest thing. Apples to apples or something yes, like that, exactly. right? Or um, exactly. You know, cards against humanity. Those kind of games that don't aren't actually good games. Um, but yeah, you survived, and we've discovered that you are a selfish eco terrorist. So congratulations on that. No, 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 um, not an eco-terrorist. I, I said you should kill a human to save an ecosystem. Right. That's what an eco-terrorist oh, is. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> yes. You, oh, you didn't know an eco-terrorist are like going out and bombing ecosystems, right? Like, yeah. Wow, right. I can't believe uh, my brain reversed that like that. I know, that's pretty funny though. Now I'm actually, wondering if I gave you know. a different answer on, a, on one of the questions. Oh, would you actually have, uh, you know, no. No, 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 kill, I, I kill a human to save the ecosystem. The, the broader impact impacts more human beings. I see it, fair enough. Um, all right. Well, we are at the end of our main show, but Matt, do you want to let folks know where they can find you and your stuff online? Uh, just Google Matt Dillahunty and you will find uh, my YouTube, my Patreon. It's patreon.com slash atheist debates. My YouTube is sans deity. I'm sure there's a link tree somewhere. I just don't ever use it. Fair so. enough. I'm actually typing it in right now. Link tree Matt Dillahunty and see if that's fine. We'll uh, we'll include that in the show notes as well for sure. Um, but thanks, Matt. This has been a lot of fun. And folks, if y'all want to hear a little bit more about you know comparative religion and who you would murder with a trolley, um, stick around. Join us on Patreon. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest Voidlings, Chili and Demo Sticks. Thank you all very much for joining the cult. As always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Jay Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, That Bastard Neil Polzin, and Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Filmed Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter how scary it might feel, you are the void and the void is you.